0: We're going to be in James 2 this morning. We're looking at verses 1 through uh, 13, focusing, though, on 8 through 13. Imagine having spent your life on the other side of the border of the most beautiful country in the world. Almost a country so good that it would have to be from another world. Everything in that country is better. The air in that country is Cleaner. The grass is greener. The food somehow tastes better. The water is clearer and more refreshing. Even sleep in that country is more peaceful. The king of that country is known for his justice and wisdom. And imagine you on the other side of that border always longing to be in that country. Each year you enter a a, a, a lottery to be, to be granted the right to immigrate into that country, to be given citizenship in that country. And finally, your number is called. You enter into the gates with joy, amazed at the privilege of being a citizen in this beautiful country. Now, I can guarantee as you enter that country, unless, unless there's something very strange going on in your mind you don't go into that country planning on breaking the laws of the land. You don't smuggle in some some sharpie markers in your uh, pocket so you can write up the the walls of the elevators. You don't sneak in a gun because you plan on committing murder the first chance you can. Whatever kind of, uh, uh, of, of outlawed material you had, whatever kind of wrong or moral pictures or music you've left far behind. You're so thankful to become a citizen of this country that your great desire is to show your love for the king by obeying his laws. Brothers and sisters, those of you whom God has graciously allowed, that's all of you if you're brothers and sisters, into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, Those of us who have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our King Jesus has no bad laws. Right? All of his laws are good and beautiful commands for us. This morning in James 2 verses 8 through 13 we'll see that those who have entered into the kingdom of Jesus Christ are those who submit to his royal laws. That those who have entered into the kingdom of Jesus Christ are those who submit to his royal laws. Even his laws about how we treat those whom the world rejects. Including those laws that, that teach us how to treat those whom the world rejects. Now I'm going to try to set up the context here of James Remember, James is the half-brother of, 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 of Jesus, one of Mary and Joseph's sons. He was an early leader of the Jewish church, although not one of the apostles. And our best understanding is that James is writing this letter to Jewish Christians scattered across the Roman Empires. There were Jewish communities across the Jewish world, I mean across the Roman world, among these these, 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 these pockets of Jewish cultures there. There were those who accepted Jesus as, as the Messiah. Well, life for these Jewish Christians among Jews living in a Gentile world was not easy. They, many of them had been rejected by their fellow Jews. They were being persecuted by their fellow Jews and maybe by the Gentile world as well at this point. And many of them, if not already impoverished, had become so. This is likely the first book of the New Testament written. It was written between 45 and 49 uh, 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 AD, between 10 and 15 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Now James knows enough of his audience that although these Jewish Christians had gone, a lot, gone through a lot in accepting Christ, uh, he had heard enough reports from these scattered communities to be concerned about the validity of their confession of faith in Christ. He calls them to be doers of the word in James 1.21 and not hearers only. In James 1.26-27, James defines the essential traits of, of pure and undefiled religion. These are not the only ones, but they are true ones. Like controlling our tongues. Compassion on widows and orphans and those who are helpless. Rejections of the world system. In chapters in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, James focuses on one aspect of pure and undefiled, re- 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 undefiled religion. And it is not showing favoritism. In James 2, verses 1 through, th- one through 3, we saw two weeks ago, James declares that, that, that favoritism is incompatible with faith in Jesus Christ. That favoritism and faith do not mix. In James 2, 4 through 7, we saw some of the uh, reasons that James developed to reject favoritism. And, and, and there was some logic there that, that by participating in favoritism, they, 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 they showed the, the, uh, the brokenness of their judgment. They showed an ignorance of God's ways and God's plan. It is to save the poor. How favoritism brings shame upon those who have been rejected how favoritism shows the stupefying effects of sin how it exposes a risk of even of disloyalty to christ and really if you think about it the what's at the heart of favoritism is the same among the reasons why christ himself was rejected how people miss the grandness of christ's glory in James 2, 8 through 13 this morning, James continues to plead with the churches to repent of favoritism and to live according to the law of Christ's kingdom. He pleads with them to repent of favoritism and to live according to the law of Christ's kingdom. So I'm going to read now from James 2, verses 1 through 13. James begins, My, my, my brethren... Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes... And you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? What are you doing? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, and this is our focus this morning, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who has said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This morning in James 2, verses 8 through 13, James gives the churches four reasons to repent of favoritism and to keep Christ's law to love their neighbor as themselves. In 2:8 through 13, James gives the churches four reasons. To repent of favoritism. So it's the continuing of an argument he already started. But four reasons to repent of favoritism. And we're going to add to that. To keep Christ's law. To love our neighbors as ourselves. The first reason. Believers can obey their king's law. Believers can obey their king's law. Not from our own strength, but through Christ who lives in us. We can obey the king's law. Listen to the hope that verse 8 gives. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law by not showing favoritism, you're instead fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. No doubt, many of those that James wrote to could be encouraged by how Christ had taught them to love their neighbors. This is not all doom and gloom. Not everyone who he was writing to had been enslaved in favoritism. Some of them were doing well. They were doing well. That means they were living rightly. They were obeying God's law. They weren't deceived by the promises of partiality. Instead, they were fulfilling the royal law. The royal law is the law of God's kingdom. It is the law that is royal because of King Jesus. It is the law that was lived out by King Jesus. It is the law that was taught by King Jesus, that was exemplified by King Jesus. And the law that he died so that we could live. The law of God's kingdom is a faultless, beautiful law. The law of King Jesus is not a new law, though it is disclosed with splendid clarity by Jesus Christ. And and really, we, we, we looked at that some last week at Pastor Clifton's message from John 13, 34 and 35. It's a new commandment, but because of Jesus making it so vividly clear for us. It's not a new law. James says it is according to scripture. And then James quotes from Leviticus 19 verse 18. So if you've never read through the book of Leviticus, this is where we get some some beautiful nuggets like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ summarizes what this royal law is in Matthew 22 verses 36 to 40. When one asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. All of the law and the prophets can be summarized by these two commands of loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. If you want to boil down what Jesus' kingly laws is, there you have it. One, one, one commentator um uh martyr when i can not and, and i'm not going to pronounce his name really i don't even know how to really it's M-O-T-Y-E-R. Uh, uh, and, and, and i'm going to read an extended portion because i think he does a great job of explaining what it means to love your neighbor as as yourself cuz automatically you might have questions loving myself is that an okay thing to do is that is is that a bad thing is that something we do can we avoid doing that well what does he mean like sometimes uh, so 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 i'm 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 going to read this extended quote here And beginning. If we want to know how we are to love our neighbors, we must ask a prior question How do we love ourselves? Never, it is to be hoped, with an emotional thrill. Rarely, as a matter of fact, with much sense of satisfaction. Mostly with pretty wholesale disapproval. But always, he says, with concern, care, and attention. Concern, care, and attention. When we catch sight of our faces, he continues, in in the mirror, first thing in the morning, the word word, ug comes spontaneously to the lips. Yet at once, even though we might see our we take the revolting face to the bathroom, we wash it and tend it and make it as presentable as nature will allow. And so it goes on through the day. Loving ourselves means providing loving care and attention. Right? And I'll requote that. Loving ourselves means providing loving care and attention. This is the model in which we are to base our relationships to all to whom we owe neighborly duty. Everything conspires today to define love, he continues, primarily in emotional terms. Right? Most often we think of love in emotional terms. Scripturally, love is to be defined in caring terms. For the love that is owed to our neighbor is the love we expend on ourselves. And I think that that's really useful, and that's the, the, the end of the quote there. That care we give to ourselves, the attention we give to ourselves, the way we take care of ourselves is how we are supposed to take care of our neighbors. To love our neighbors is to treat them as we would want to be treated. Favoritism, on the other hand, chooses to distribute care and attention only on those neighbors, really ultimately, and we talked about this last time in James, who can somehow benefit us, right? It is doling out favor to the person who's going to be able to bless us somehow back. Perhaps you are like the teacher of the law in Luke 10, verses 29 to 37, who after hearing Jesus talked about loving your neighbor as yourself. Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And what follows is known as the parable of, of the Good Samaritan. I'll read it. Jesus replied and said, A man was, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Hint, that's not a good neighbor. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who are known as enemies of Jews and Jews as enemies of Samaritans, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. This is the exact opposite of that picture of favoritism in James, right? On the next day, the Samaritan took out, out, out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. And then Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him, then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. And this is an important theme we're going to see here. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the same as showing mercy, as showing compassion. So who is your neighbor? It is the person who you come across who has a need. The person who needs your care and attention. The person whom you can benefit and be a blessing to. Pastor John MacArthur says that our neighbors, anyone whose need we can meet. Now, James talks about fulfilling this royal law. And fulfilling that law doesn't mean that you can keep God's law perfectly. Right? Because he says you you can do well. You can fulfill this royal law fully, if not perfectly. It means that the pattern of your life, excuse me, is living by God's law. (coughs) That you make your choices according to God's law. John Calvin says, to fulfill it means to perform it, to keep it, and I love this phrase, with real integrity of heart. As they say, Calvin says, roundly. To fulfill it roundly as he sets such a keeping in opposition to a partial observance to it. To fulfill the law means you, you you don't fulfill it partially, but fully. You pay attention to it. The royal law is the lens through which you consistently view those God brings on your path. You're looking through with the lenses of God's law as God brings you neighbors, and you say, Are you my neighbor? How can I care for you? You're my neighbor. How can I care for you? The law teaches us to love, and love fulfills the law. Romans 13:10 says, This is the Apostle Paul: love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And again in Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to keep Christ's royal law, then love your neighbor. We are good subjects of King Jesus when we love our neighbor as ourselves. And that may describe you this morning. You do not have to feel condemned right now if you are walking in love. You may be doing well, and James understands that. He has some hard words he's saying, and it's going to get pretty, pretty rough here. But he, he looks at the audience and he says, You may be doing well with those neighbors within your circle, but also when God surprises you by widening your circle. And by all of a sudden, the, the, the people in your sphere, suddenly he adds one more to It is difficult to process the amount of potential neighbors we have in today's connected world. Do you feel the weight of that? Right. You, you just have to get on social media and you're like, whoa, I've got a lot of neighbors. You watch the nightly news and you're like, are all these my neighbors too? It is complex. We live in a, an area of 20 million people in a county of 3 million. How do we process who our neighbor is? It's pretty easy to cut ourselves off from our neighbors, right? We can have almost no neighbors if we want. We can have all of our groceries delivered to our door. We don't actually ever have to see anyone. Or we can open ourselves to the floodgate of of social media. Not a bad thing. But all we have is neighbors. And I don't know how to balance all that. But is... Your, is the your, is your, is resolution of your heart to fulfill God's law with the time and resources he has given you? Is the commitment of your heart, is the resolution of your heart to fulfill God's law with the time and resources he has given you? You can go to bed each day knowing you have loved your neighbors truly, if not perfectly. You can be encouraged. Just practically, I think for some of us, we just need to widen our time a little bit more. Widen our, our pockets a little bit more. To let in some more neighbors. We might have to go and find our neighbors. Maybe neighbors that we actually knock on someone's door and get to know. Maybe opening our our eyes a little bit wider at work. Maybe it is to be influenced by some of the things we see on social media. Maybe it's to have our heart further opened to our missionaries' work around the world. So here's a good reason to keep Christ's law, to love our neighbors as ourselves. The first is, you can obey your king's law. This is a good law. The first reason <clears throat> that's better. The first reason is that you can keep the King's Law. The second reason is that favoritism is shattering the King's Law. And this is where James starts getting a little heavy here. James feared that many were not submitting themselves to the King's Law. That 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 that, that they were a discrepancy calling Christ as King. James 2 9 says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. So in the immediate context, showing partiality. Receiving someone because of their appearances. Because of their externals. What you like about them. What you enjoy about them. It was, James makes it synonymous as not loving your neighbor as yourself. Favoritism is not an excusable uh, omission of passing someone over. It's not something you probably should have done but didn't. Favoritism, James says, is committing sin. The word committing here is working at sin. It's producing sin. Effort is being expended in sin, but it's being spent in missing the mark of God's standard instead of of fulfilling it. It's putting your energy in the wrong place. In fact, James says the situation is even more serious. Those who show partiality are convicted of being lawbreakers as violators of God's law. James is bringing out here the seriousness of the condition. You can't go home feeling good if you are guilty of partiality. You're a lawbreaker, a law trouncer. You didn't just dishonor someone as you rushed to honor someone else. You violated God's law. Favoritism is taking your car and pointing it towards the guardrails of God's law, right? So you can imagine yourself driving on one of those paths, and you, and, and you stay on the path. Well, instead, you kind of pull yourself over, you, you point right towards the guardrails of God's law, and then you put it in drive, you start revving the engine, and you plow right over the cliff. That is what partiality is. It's not like, oops, I got a little too close t- to the edge of God's law. It is violating it. It is demolishing God's law. You can imagine the the self-righteous defense revving up. And maybe some of you are feeling that now. James is going to have to convince his audience that that this sin, this this, this passing over someone, is that bad. So he goes on in James 2, uh, verse 10. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law, And yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Perhaps there were those who who prided themselves on their law keeping. Perhaps they saw favoritism as a minor offense. As an indiscretion they felt guilty about in hindsight. But nothing to ruin your day over. But James brings the hammer down. You can't keep the whole law and stumble at one point. James says you're guilty of all. It doesn't mean that you've broken every individual commandment of God's law. But the law as a whole has been smashed. God's law is like a window and any sin is a rock thrown through it. All the windows smashed, not just a part of it. You don't look and say, well, the window's not broken. It's just got a a hole in the upper left-hand corner. No, the window's broken. James defends this position in in 2, verse 11. He uses two sins that everyone would agree were serious. For he who said, he continues, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, this goes against how we think about laws in, in, in general. We don't consider ourselves guilty of tax evasion if we break the speed limit. But unlike our system of laws, God's law has one source, God himself. The God who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not commit murder. You can't congratulate yourself on not committing murder if you have committed adultery. That person is not a law keeper. They're a violator, transgressor of the law. They willingly cross God's line to do what is forbidden by God. The uh, pastor, R. Uh, uh, Kent Hughes writes, it takes but one adulterous act to make an adulterer. One theft to make a thief. One murder to make a murderer. And only one broken law to make a lawbreaker. And that includes favoritism. Obedience in one point of the law doesn't compensate for disobedience in another. It's irrelevant how often you keep the speed limit when you get pulled over for running a red light. You can't say, well, I've kept the speed limit all day, all month. It doesn't matter how faithful you've been to your wife if you murder your boss. James doesn't doesn't connect the dots for us, but it's easy enough to. The same God who said, do not commit adultery, the same God who said, do not commit murder, also commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. If we are guilty of favoritism, we are guilty of violating God's law. And so James is pushing us. He's pushing us to an either or or evaluation. Are you fulfilling the royal law or are you violating it? And I think we should be slow to answer this question. Now, we don't have to be discouraged. Believers can't obey the king's law, and you may be. But favoritism is also shattering the king's law. It's okay if you can't answer that question during the sermon. If, you're, if you say, I'm going to need to spend some time praying about that. i got to spend some time thinking about that. You can begin by asking, do I give others the care that I ought? Regardless of who they are, Regardless of what they look like, regardless if they have anything to offer me back, do I care for those whom I know have a need? Am I like the King Jesus in neighborly love, or really have I been satisfied as long as I don't break the big commands? If you realize that you've been justifying law breaking because of your law keeping, right? Well, I've been law breaking in some areas, but most of them law keeping. You have to ask: Have I truly submitted? Have I truly submitted to Christ as my King? Have I put my trust in Christ to take my punishment for smashing His law? Is He my one hope? Now when we are exposed by... And and that's what James is doing. And we're going to see he's going to keep doing that in the book of James. He wants this to be a painful test for us. He wants to, to get in our hearts. He wants us to be leveled. He wants us to be crumpled before God's law. So that we look to Christ. Because God gives grace to the humble. We must hope in Christ. And that's what you should do now. If you feel yourself leveled and brought low, hope in Christ and put your hope in his death in your place. Trust in his resurrection for your justification. But you also have to be willing to give up your law-smashing bats, right? We can't love the lawgiver and willingly persist in law-breaking. Our first reason to keep Christ's royal law, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to repent of favoritism is believers can obey the king's law. Favoritism, second reason, is shattering the king's law. The third reason, you will be judged under the king's law. You will be judged under the king's law. James 2.12. Now, James knows the gospel. He could say, don't worry, everyone. You If Christ died for your sins, you're fine. He doesn't do that, though. James 2.12 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And we're thankful for that liberty word there, right? Because it's like, wow, this is pretty heavy. James commands us first to speak and to act like those who know... They, God will judge our conformity to his law that we're going to have to give an account. And not just for, for big commands like not committing adultery or not committing murder, but also little commands like loving our neighbor as ourselves. And perhaps that is shocking to you who knows and who holds and clings to the good news that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. And this doesn't mean that God does not justify or declare someone righteous by faith. He does, Romans 3.28 says. We maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We know that we are, are made righteous in Christ through faith. But this doesn't mean that we are to ignore that God has evaluative judgment. Matthew 12, verses 36 to 37. This is maybe the kind of thing James heard Jesus say. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What you say is going to reveal to whom you belong. How you love will will reveal who your king is. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. I'm not going to read all of it. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And to the sheep, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You loved your neighbor. I know you from your works. Verse 45, Jesus will say to the goats, he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that's what James is saying. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged under God's law of liberty. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And that doesn't mean that God's going to kind of evaluate and balance and oh, have you done more good than bad? No, he's gonna be looking for actions of obedience that come through your faith in Jesus Christ, through your union of life with him. And those who do not have new life in Christ will have no good acts of obedience. Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And yet the law of liberty. I love that. He could have just said law. But he reminds us here it's the law of liberty. And that's a comforting phrase. It's a warm phrase. I love that law is put together with liberty. It reminds us that God's law is given to those whom God has liberated from slavery to sin by the great liberator Jesus Christ. The law of liberty is not a crushing restraint, but the beautiful boundaries of God-pleasing behavior. It's not a burden to bear, but freedom to flourish. God's law is not a burden to bear, but it's freedom to flourish. He empowers us to obey this law. It is a law that is loved by God's people. It is because of this law that really we wanted to be part of God's kingdom. We saw Jesus Christ in all of his beauty living and exemplifying this law. And we're like, I want to live like him. This is the law of liberty. This is a good law. This is the law that God writes in our hearts by his spirit. Those who live under this law of liberty expectantly wait to be sorted as sheep. We're eager for Jesus to come back and for us all to be before him and to be like, I'm a sheep. I'm a sheep. I belong over there. I love this law of liberty. My my delight has been to love my neighbor as myself. I repented of favoritism. I don't want any of that worldly stain on me. I'm devoted to ministering, to to helping widows and orphans. I've been controlling my tongue. I want to do God's word. They've devoted themselves to keeping the royal law. They know that they have not obeyed perfectly, but that Christ's justification of them, his new life has been imparted to them has resulted in God-pleasing behavior. But those who have ignored and resented God's law, who do not know this liberating power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are just dreading all the time that God has commands, they're not going to listen to James' warning. They think they're fine, despite the evidence of the contrary. So, so don't ignore the warning. Perhaps you're tempted to think that, well, this is an evaluation of Christians and and, and 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 this is just about about reward. He's not really warning us. He just wants us to get more rewards. But look at what he says. Judgment in verse 13 will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. That's wrath. Judgment will be merciless. What sobering words. The one who shows no mercy. The word show means to to, to carry out a a obligation. To to practice it. To keep it. And James' warning here is parallel. Although the, the reverse of Matthew 5 verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. It's almost as if James is saying the opposite. Cursed are the unmerciful, for they will not receive any mercy. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who receive mercy in judgment day are those who've shown mercy. Mercy's not the the grounds of their salvation. It's not why they're saved, but it is an evidence of their salvation. Those that God has shown mercy to become merciful. And that that is the... the, uh, uh, The point of Jesus' parable of the forgiving steward in Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35. I I encourage you to to, to look over that at home later. Matthew 18, verses 23 to 35. It it exemplifies this. It would be great to go through with your kids. I don't have time now to read it all, but the warning at the end. the, 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 The unforgiving servant says... The Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That is a sobering warning from Jesus Christ. This is where James got this from. If you don't show mercy, you are not those who will receive mercy. Those who do not practice mercy demonstrate that they haven't received mercy. So, what does your mercy show about you? And mercy is being used as a parallel for loving your neighbor, and it's being used as a parallel of rejecting favoritism. What does your mercy show about you? Do you have mercy for the poor, for the uneducated, for the awkward, for the out of shape, for the boring? Or do you run to the rich? and to the educated, and to the interesting, and to the fit and the attractive, to the creative, and to the influencers. That's the favoritism we're talking about. What does your mercy show about you? So we've seen three reasons so far. Believers can obey their king's law. You can do well through him. Favoritism is shattering the king's law. And for doing so, reason three, you'll be judged under the king's law. But, reason four, the king's mercy triumphs over the king's judgment. The king's mercy triumphs over the king's judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that word triumph, it is reason to boast against. It's, the, it's like the reason that the Lakers had to boast over the heat. You can imagine the victor's celebrations, that triumph. It's that boasting. Mercy. Boast over judgment. Look at my trophy. Now James doesn't mean that we can ignore the warnings he just gave. Because God's mercy is greater than his judgment. He doesn't say, now just ignore everything I just said. Because mercy beats judgment. No. The greatness of God's mercy does not mean that we all get a free pass. That would make meaningless James' warning and Jesus' warning that we would be judged under this law of liberty. We have to ask, whose mercy triumphs over judgment? And honestly, it, it is a little tough to decide. It could be our mercy. And I know that might sound wrong at first. Our mercy triumphs over judgment. But before God, it could be our mercy. As we show mercy instead of favoritism, as we, as we fulfill the royal law, we give evidence that we do not have to fear judgment, right? Because God has changed us. Our, our, the mercy that, the, the, that we are acting out triumphs over judgment. I'm not afraid of mercy. I'm one of the sheep. I love the Lord Jesus. I've been obeying the Lord Jesus. I've been longing for the Lord Jesus' return. I'm not afraid of judgment. We can look forward to God's evaluation because God's declaring us righteous in Christ has manifested itself in sanctification through Christ. But, and I think it is this, it could be that God's mercy triumphs over judgment because of what God's mercy accomplishes in the lives and hearts of those who are truly saved. And that's in contrast to the parable of the unforgiving servant. See, that man received mercy, but he didn't show any mercy. But what God does in our hearts, when we receive mercy, what does he make us? He makes us people who love our neighbors he makes his people who repent to favoritism he makes his people who show mercy God's mercy works in our heart to make us merciful people so that we practice mercy so that we have confidence in judgment because the king's mercy has rescued us from the king's judgment mercy from God precedes our mercy to men and the mercy that God has lavished on us in Christ Jesus overflows in our hearts in mercy to one another and so we look at judgment and we say I'm not not afraid. I'm not afraid because God has transformed me. And that is hoping in Jesus Christ. That is hoping in the justification that Christ has given, but also in the sanctification that he works out in our lives. So are you one who shows mercy to widows and orphans? To the poor and to the dishonored? Because God has poured out his mercy on you? Or has mercy been bottlenecked in your home? Or maybe has mercy been bottlenecked in our church? Do we only extend mercy to those in our circle? Or is your mercy real mercy? And not that it's bad as your mercy to one another, of course, or in our home. We know we have to do a lot of that. But is your mercy Christ kind of mercy? A love your enemy kind of mercy? A love your neighbor as yourself kind of mercy, kind of mercy that hates favoritism. Is that the mercy that triumphs over judgment? Is it a neighbor-loving mercy? Or is it a mercy that looks a lot like favoritism for me and mine? Imagine the new immigrant to this beautiful country being stopped within the borders of that beautiful country, of the borders of the kingdom. And he's asked, do you belong here? Like, how did you get here? Do you have your passport? And the one who can say, yes, I belong here. Yes, I belong here. The king has had such mercy on me that he died so I could be part of this kingdom. The person who who has that faith is the same person who can say, Yes, I follow the king's law. He has had mercy on me, so I love my neighbor as myself. They're the same person. You who have come into God's kingdom through the grace of our Lord Jesus, are you willing to obey the king's law? The law of liberty, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Are you willing? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word, and there are some uh, days where where the uh, where the greatest portion is all about what you have done for us, and our hearts so rejoice in what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, that you have given us mercy. And then there are other portions, Lord, where the focus is on what you require from us. It's not the only thing. We see your law as royal. We see that it's a law of liberty. We know that Christ came to, to rescue us from the slavery to sin. But Lord, we do see that you have requirements from your people. That if we want to be confident that we are those who... Um, are escaping from judgment, that we will be those who show mercy, who love our neighbors as ourselves. Father, I pray that you would encourage those who, after they do some hard work, can go home, or maybe later this week, be encouraged that they are fulfilling your law, that they're doing well. And I pray, Father, for those of us who truly know you but have not been doing well, that we would repent quickly, and that we would, commit to loving our neighbors as ourselves, and that we would even be willing to open wider the circle of our lives so that we could find who needs mercy from you. I pray, Father, for those of us who fail the test, that we would go to you for mercy, knowing you are merciful, you're willing to forgive and to restore. In Jesus' name, amen.